title for this evening's message is The True King of Kings. The True King of Kings. In our world today, um, there's we tend to respect power. Perhaps not true authority from heaven, but we tend to, in some ways, respect power, strength. We might think of strength, military might in the world as we look at this psalm here this evening. Uh, Normally speaking, the biggest military mights in the world, nobody really wants to mess with them. They're too afraid to challenge them in their power. But what happens when there is, as we see today, moral and structural weakness in, you could say, the leading in the world, in the Western world? Will there be a challenge to that power? And there often is. <clears throat> Many years ago, Britain used to have the most powerful empire in the world. And Britain was often the first country or empire that anyone would look to for trouble. Um, today, the most powerful empire, if you want to call it that, is probably the United States of America. And we see, don't we, in Britain and America, the, the, the failed leadership that we seem to have in both nations, um, signs of things getting weaker, we... Um, there's a lot of chaos and confusion in society. And we see challenges, don't we, to the, whoever is going to be number one in the world. Whether that be Russia, China, or whatever. Is. So we live in a, a very changing world. Enemies of empires will spot weaknesses and will challenge it. This happened in the ancient world as well. There was once a Babylonian empire. There was once an Assyrian empire. And what happened to those? They were challenged. They were defeated. And they fell. But what happens when sinners underestimate the power, the true power in the universe? And this is what we're going to see this evening. The power of God, the greatness of God, the glory of God, uh, the justice of God. And not only do they underestimate and undervalue these things, they despise them. And this is what is in Psalm They underestimate God, they rebel against him, and they attempt in their rage and in their hatred of the things that God represents. Something that is impossible and something that brings their own doom and destruction through it. So this evening, let us see who the true king of kings is. Who is truly on the throne, who is truly in control. The son of David who is the Lord Jesus, the Christ, the anointed one spoken of here in the second verse. Psalm 2, let us hear God's holy and infallible word. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us break their bands asunder. And cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath. And vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. 
I will declare the decree the Lord hath said unto me. Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I will give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings, be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry, and ye perish from the way, when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. And may the Lord bless his holy and infallible word. As we look at the psalm, and as we perhaps ask the question, what is the most common emotion being expressed in the world today? Perhaps that emotion might be one of rage. Rage. In a world of plenty, things there are Challenges, of course, in people's lives. But if we compare what we live in today, compared to our great-grandparents, generations gone by, they would say, they would probably say to us, we live as kings. We live as kings. But in this world of plenty, and every day there seems to be a new crisis in the media, there seems to be a lack of a calmness, isn't there? There seems to be panic and a rage and an annoyance at everything. And, and so much so that people who once could get along with each other, didn't agree with each other and everything, that is no longer possible, even among neighbors. And this is across the world. Anger, rage, hostility. Of course, yes, we can all point back to the time of the fall. That brings this hostility against Christ. But why do we get angry? Why do we get angry personally ourselves? We believe something is wrong. Something is not right. Some standard by which we hold to be just, to be true. Well that standard has been broken. Whatever it is. To, to you, against you or against something else. That standard has been broken. And the enemies of the Lord in our text, they show anger to the Lord. There's a rage, there's a restlessness, there's an unhappiness. But what about us in our own lives? Are we calm amidst the storms of life? Are we content with what the Lord does No matter what is going on around us. The challenge is not whether we're content and happy when everything is happening just as we would hope life would turn out for us. It's easy to be content in those times. The the question is, are we content and joyful and rejoicing in the midst of great suffering? Content with the Lord's provision. This is not easy. Actually, in our flesh, it's impossible. It's only possible by faith and looking to Jesus Christ. Are we content with our lot in life? And so, as we look at Psalm 2 here this evening, what can we learn 
that they're enemies. And they're not just enemies of Christ. They're our enemies. How do we react to our enemies? As they are also those who are angry with us. And why are they angry with us? Because of what we represent. What we stand for. And who we love. We love the one who is spoken about in the psalm. We love this anointed one. We stand for him. We live for him because we've been brought into sweet communion with him. Our first point that we're going to look at here this evening is an agenda of failure. An agenda or of failure or you could think of a plan of failure. Something, sometimes some plans are so bad that when they're put down on paper, it's very clear to others that they're doomed to failure. They are doomed from the very beginning. There's no possibility of them ever working out. In verse 1 it says, Why do the heathen rage? And the people imagine a vain thing. Now the people, do they imagine something worthwhile? Something clever? Something cunning? In our text it says, no, it's something vain or something worthless or something empty and void. Uh, Something that serves no purpose because at the end of the day the same one remains on the throne. It has achieved nothing. It is an agenda or a plan of failure, doomed to failure from the very beginning for those who will challenge the the true authority in the universe. There's no change. Our God cannot be touched. That's a wonderful comfort, isn't it, to us believers in Jesus Christ. Our God cannot be touched in any way. He cannot suffer. He does not change. He is still on the throne. And he will forever be the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So then the psalmist, almost in exasperation, why? Why do the heathen rage? And the people imagine a vain thing. There's often this disbelief. Why would they do such a thing? Here, the the nations, you could also translate this word, the heathen, the nations, or even the Gentiles. Because literally, this word is hagoim. Goim is that word for nations. And the idea is those outside of the nation of Israel. When it speaks of the nations in the scriptures, it's not speaking about every single nation. It's speaking about the nations outside of the nation of Israel. And they were always those who followed what? False gods. They were unbelievers. They were heathen. As it says here, as it translates it here in the AV. They are restless against them. These, the, the nations or the heathen, they war with God. There is no peace. They rage against them. As we think about that word rage, when we, when, when we do something wrong, because we've been created in the image of God, when we do something wrong, and we know that it's wrong, what does it do to people? It robs them of peace. If somebody does something really, really bad, perhaps they've been involved in a car accident, and the guilt of this plagues their conscience, they can't sleep. Or they've done something else that troubles them in their conscience. They know that it is wrong. 
This often is what happens with people. They will try to shut out the voice of conscience. That's why you have lots of people in our world. Drink, drugs, other things. In order that because their conscience is bothered and they don't want to hear what the conscience is saying to them because we've been created in the image of God. The world does not want to hear the law of God. Peace is robbed from them because we have sinned. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's a tumultuous, there's an uproar, there's confusion, there's noise, there's rage against that truth. That's the, the idea of the word rage. They rage against it. Tumultuous rage. Now we need to also point out that this is not every single person in the world. Yes, this is our nature for every single person. But this is specifically speaking about those outside the church. Outside of the nation of Israel. The nations. The heathen. Uh, these who are raging against, it says in verse 2, against his anointed They are outside of Christ. They are at war with Christ. A war that has begun from the very beginning of Adam's fall. We look back to Genesis 3 verse 15. Which speaks of this war. This war spoken about. Why did the heathen rage? It really goes back to this. uh, Genesis 3 verse 15. And I will put enmity. That is division. Hostility. Between thee and the woman. And between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shall bruise his heel. There are two seeds, and there is a division. There is a war taking place between them both. And there is a hostility between those in the seed outside of Christ, the seed of the serpent, against the seed of the woman. And that seed of the woman will eventually crush completely and utterly all the serpent seed. And that is those outside of Christ. But they, this war outside of Christ, it is doomed to failure. It is a vain thing that they imagine. Useless. Utterly useless. Now, it speaks of those outside of Christ. But can we, as believers in Jesus Christ, can we be drawn and be influenced after those in the world? We'd have to say we can be, of course. We, we still wrestle with the old nature, even with our new nature. Sometimes when we drift from the Lord, we may be a true believer in Jesus Christ, but we drift, we, we backslide, and we engage in something that is useless. Useless. A departure from God, doing what we want. And that can be things like neglecting church. I remember I was saved about a year and a half. I was in Italy and I remember on a Skype call talking to my pastor back in Cork and I remember him basically telling me to get a church. He did it very graciously and everything else. Like, but I was neglecting church at that time. I'd been to church for a few weeks. It's very easy to get into that pattern. Perhaps it's neglecting the needs in your own home. But whatever the case is, sin is useless. And we too, as believers, can at times forget our responsibility, forget who we belong to, and engage in these useless things that do not have eternal value. Now, anything we do 
in the service of Christ, whether anybody sees it or not, the Lord sees it. The Lord sees it. It's of eternal value. He sees all. No matter how high or how lonely we see our service in Christ, it is never worthless. It is always wonderful. It is always of eternal value. But it must be for his glory. Verse 2 talks about here. uh, Verse 2 says, The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, This word anointed is where we get the word Messiah. Messiah, it's from the Hebrew word Mashiach. And that word can also be translated into the the Greek Christos, is where we get the word Christ. This is why in your New Testament, in Acts chapter 4, verse 24, when it's quoting from this verse, it doesn't say the anointed, it says Christ. Because you just get this translation of the word but Christ literally means the anointed one Messiah means the anointed one and Jesus is the Christ he is the Messiah he is the anointed one who is to be the king the savior of the world the the one that they've all been waiting for the one who would redeem them that prophet prophesied back in Deuteronomy chapter 18 They who are outside of Christ, spoken about here, the heathen, they rage against Christ. They rage against him. They fight against Christ. Even the people who say, well, I think Jesus was a great teacher, but he wasn't God. They too rage against this anointed one. They're against him. They are against him. It's a doomed agenda and a doomed plan. But dear friends, if we are in him, we have been victorious in him. We've tasted part of the victory, but we will have fullness to come. We may think, well, our nights... Roman Catholic neighbor, or perhaps that liberal Protestant down the road doesn't doesn't read the scriptures, doesn't believe any of the Bible doctrine. And you think, well, this person can't hate Christ. I've seen them read all these books about the topic of Christianity. Dear friends, if you trust in another gospel, you have trusted in a different Christ, and he is not the Christ of the Bible. And to trust in a different Christ is to be against this anointed one. This anointed one. For Christ in Christ's victory. But against him. Why? Why do you rage against him? So we've looked at an agenda of failure. It is doomed to failure. Number two now. An ambition of freedom. An ambition of freedom. So you might ask yourself now at this point. What do they want? This plan is doomed to failure. But we all want something don't we? We all have a motivation for doing what we do. The nations, the heathen, want to break from God. They want to break the influence from God. And they want freedom to do whatever they want. They want to be a God of their own kingdom. 
It says in verse 3, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. They want to be free from his control. They want to be free from his dominion. We should too want a freedom, but not the freedom spoken about here or the supposed freedom spoken about here in verse 3. There is a true freedom we should all seek in Christ. A freedom from tyranny, from oppressive rule and reign. You see, the sad thing is here, the heathen, those who haven't trusted in Jesus Christ, who are in our neighborhoods, they may be very nice people, we may greet them and have very good conversations with them, but in their heart, unless they have trusted in Jesus Christ, this is what they want. They want to break away from Christ And they want nothing to do with them. They want to live their life in the way they want to live it. And they don't want to be told what to do. And they think to serve this Christ is oppressive. Tyrannical and utterly horrible. Something to fight against. But brethren, we should know better, shouldn't we? That to serve Christ is the most wonderful thing in this world. True freedom comes in Jesus Christ. And we too should have an ambition of freedom. And a, the right freedom though. A joyful freedom. It, it's sad sometimes. We can have all the right doctrine on paper. But sometimes we can forget to be joyful. The Bible also tells us to rejoice I think at times, and I'm guilty of this myself, we can be so serious about whatever we're doing and be so serious about this, that, and And we should be. I'm not saying we shouldn't, but the world should see a joy, a rejoicing in our hearts as we come to church. It's not something where we're just doing it because we have to do it. We want to be here. It's a pleasant aroma, yes, before that throne of heaven because of Christ, but also Christ is a pleasant aroma For us. A joyful freedom. Free from the bands and the cords of sin. That trap and ensnare us. We want to be free of something. An oppressive and horrible and tyrannical reign. But it is sin. The flesh and the devil is that tyrannical and horrible reign. Which we wish to be free of. It says in Romans 6-7. For he that is dead is freed from sin. And as dead in Christ. And in Romans 6.18 it says. Being then made free from sin. He became the servants of righteousness. So there's a freedom here spoken of. But it's not the freedom. Of which the heathen here. Are seeking after. Galatians 5.1. Stand fast therefore in the liberty. Wherewith Christ hath made us free. And be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. There are many people suffering around the world in horrible and oppressive regimes. And they would love to live in parts of the West. They would dearly love to get away from the countries in which they are under oppressive regimes. But this is the most wonderful freedom that any of us can ever have. You see people when they come 
from parts of the Middle East and they come to Britain or they come to the United States and they speak and they, they, they talk about the freedoms of the West and how amazing it is. And to a degree, they're, they're right. It's, it, is, it is a blessing to be in this part of the world. But, the, but it is nothing compared to the freedom spoken about in the scriptures. The horrible thing we are to be free of is sin. And that can only come through serving Jesus Christ. If we are in Christ. Now. What about. The enemies. Spoken about here. The enemies spoken about here. It says in verse 4. He that sitteth in the heavens. Shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. This is how the Lord responds to those who will challenge his authority. But remember, as we said earlier, they're not just the enemies of Christ because we are in Christ and we speak for him. They can do nothing to Christ, so they seek to harm us. But remember what what says in Romans 8.31. What shall we say of the, to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? If God be for us, who can be against us? If you are in Christ, this is speaking of you. Who can be against us? God's response to those who will challenge him. Is God worried? As we sometimes worry. Does he sometimes struggle with sleep like we do? No. Now, I know when we think about this, it sounds laughable to think about it. But sometimes we forget who God is. Our God cannot be touched. He cannot suffer. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. There is an almost, what? You know, if somebody tries to harm us, but they're like, you know, a fly comes towards us, whatever. You just laugh. It is silly. In our confession of faith, it talks about God, God without passions. God without passions. And if you see that phrase in, your, in, in the confession of faith, it speaks about our God who cannot suffer. He cannot suffer. So, whatever the enemy can do, he cannot touch God. Do we have any reason to fear if God is for us and the enemies come against us as they do against his anointed? Imagine an ant trying to pick a fight with an elephant. Or imagine if a mouse is trying to fight with a lion. Do you think the lion is worried? The difference is I'm talking about two creatures here. But in the case of the heathen and God, we're talking about a creature and the creator. We're talking about the finite with the infinite. They pose no threat to God. This is why time and time again we're told in the scriptures, do not fear. However, do fear God. Because if you know who God is, you know who they are, and you trust that, we will fear God. But we can forget these things. 
Number three now, the, an assembly of fury. An assembly of fury. The enemy gathers. But when the enemy gathers in its rebellion against God, it is only assembled to be rebuked by its own folly. And it's rebuked with the Lord's fury and righteous anger. It says in verses 5 and 6, Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. The world has its king. It rages against the true king of kings and lord of lords, but sets up its own king. And that is, who is the god of this world? The devil, small g, god of this world. The world, the flesh, and the devil, they wish to enthrone because they wish to be free from the restraints of being told what to do by God. They see it as horrible and they come and they experience the fury and displeasure of God. Our king, the true king of kings, he rules and he rules upon his holy hill of Zion. He rules in a reign of holiness. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And basically that is holiness. Righteousness, truth going forth, rebuking the darkness, rebuking the rebellion against God. And that is how we are to govern our lives as well. The Lord reigns on his holy hill of Zion. We are to govern our lives according to holiness. Be holy, the Lord says, for I am holy. Holiness. There's so many things we are fascinated by in the church today. You can do so many different conferences about so many different things. If you did a conference about perhaps pre-tribulation rapture or something else like that, you would have a packed building. But if there's anything about holiness, well, interest tends to drop off a little bit. Holiness without which no one will see the Lord. His kingdom goes forth. We, we don't see a, re- a retreating kingdom here in this, in this psalm, do we? We don't see a defeatist kingdom. We see a kingdom going forth and conquering. We see an enemy being defeated, crushed, and verse 9 says, dashed to pieces. Verse 9, thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt... Dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And it can be so easy to compare the church of today, perhaps with the church of 50 years ago, the church of 150 years ago, and, well, and think that this is the way it has been throughout the last 2,000 years. But if you go across church history, friends, we had small groups, then we had thousands. And how many Christians do we have around the world now? There was a time when all the believers were found in one place, in one upper room. And then the gospel goes forth to the Sumerians, to the Gentiles, and it spreads. The kingdom goes forth. The enemy is being placed under the feet of the advancing kingdom, crushed, 
rebuked and defeated. See, our God is a consuming fire to those who are his enemies. It says in Hebrews 12.29, for our God is a consuming fire. The, the enemy is being crushed, defeated, demoralized, and we need to see this. See, sometimes we can forget this and be feeling ourselves crushed, defeated, and demoralized as we fight this war. And how do we fight this war? We need to remind ourselves of how to fight this spiritual war. We need to remind ourselves it is not a flesh and blood. Ephesians 6.12, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. And it's a different war, and it requires different weapons. And one of the most important weapons you're going to have is your sword. You're going to fight, you need a sword. The word of God. The gospel needs to be shared, proclaimed. This is why, Lord willing, we'll be able to go out again and do more open air evangelism. We pray that people and souls will be set free and saved. But ultimately, victory is declared over the enemy in the gospel. Through the cross, Satan is defeated. In the public square over his enemies, victory is being declared and God is being glorified. Now we, are, we pray, we pray. That those who are on the losing side will repent and trust in Jesus Christ. And be part of that seed that will be victorious in the end. Embracing the only begotten Son of God. It says here in verse 7. I will declare the decree. The Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my Son. This day have I begotten thee. Now this verse is quoted in Acts chapter 13. Verse 33. And it's, in, it's, it's been applied in that chapter to the resurrection. Openly, the resurrection showing the defeat of the enemies. This declaration of victory over the enemies. Declaring the world, the flesh, and the devil defeated. The one true king of kings is still on his throne. And they are rebuked. Openly, And our final point here this evening is an allegiance of fear. An allegiance of fear. So we've looked at an agenda of failure, an ambition of freedom, an assembly of fury, an allegiance of fear. Now we said earlier, don't fear, but we do all fear someone or something. If we don't fear God, we'll fear everything. We've seen this over the last... Two years. And we still see it today. What we tremble before. What we are in awe of. And it's power. And it's strength. And it's might. Is what we will serve. Verse 11 says this. Serve the Lord with fear. And rejoice with trembling. It sounds almost strange. Doesn't it? These two things together. Serve the Lord with fear. And rejoice. And rejoice. The one we bow before. The one we tremble before. The kings of the earth. 
spoken about here. These are the, the, it says in verse 10, Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Ye rulers of the earth. Now the kings of the earth often believed they were to be worshipped as gods, didn't they? You read accounts of ancient history and you'll see they wanted to be seen as the most important You'll sometimes even see this today, even in places like North Korea and China. A godlike fear and reverence and service is being placed upon the leaders of these nations. As it was with the heathen kings of old. They would pride themselves in fearing nothing. They ruled by fear. They terrorized their population. So none dared stand in their way. We saw this You see, in the Old Testament with the Assyrians, everybody was afraid of the Assyrians. Nobody crossed the Assyrians. The the Assyrians were terrifying. You read some of the things that they would do to their enemies. But they were the ones, these kings, these heathen kings, should fear God. If they were wise, if they were open to instruction, if they were open to wisdom, they would fear God, the true king. And his Christ, his anointed one. They would serve him. They would tr- Not only would they serve him, they would be trembling before him. Because they would know the power of his might. They would know the surety of his victory. Do you see the power of this risen Christ? Openly victorious over all of his enemies. He's risen from the dead. And he's victorious over the grave, over death itself, openly. Matthew 28, 18 says, And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Or that word power can also be translated authority. Authority. All authority is given unto me. Not some, all. All authority, all power has been given to me. The kings of the earth, spoken about here, these pagan kings, they want everybody else to bow before them. They want everybody to listen to them. Men will do much for power. Fallen men. What was that old phrase? Power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. We need to turn from allegiance of sin. They need to turn from allegiance of sin to an allegiance to the true king. Bowing before him and before him alone. It says in verse 12, kiss the son, lest he be angry. Kiss the son. And there's a, there's a wonderful tenderness in that verse. There. Kiss the son. And it's speaking about worship, homage, reverence. Kiss the son. Lest he be angry. It's interesting here in Hebrew, the word son is not the usual word for son in the Hebrew language. It's ben. It's actually the Aramaic word, bar. Now, Aramaic was the international language. It's the language which the nations all around them spoke. And in a very unusual here in the psalm, Kiss the sun, and he uses the word for sun, the international word, almost as if it's speaking to all the pagans all around, all the nations. 
Because it's not just us in the church who need to kiss the sun. It's everyone. And that should make it. See, we can forget this, can't we? Yes, we need to trust in Jesus Christ. And we'll tell our children and we'll tell the people within the church, Sabbath school and everything else. But that person who's never darkened the door of a church, they also need to kiss the sun. That talks speaks to the, to the urgency of the hour when it comes to evangelism. There's two sides. There's a victorious side spoken about here in the psalm. In Christ. But there's a defeated side. We pray for those. Pray for those in this village. That they would know the gospel. That they would kiss the sun. Lest he be angry. We don't want them to perish. We want them to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And we pray by God's grace, every single one of you have kissed the Son and continue to do so. Because if you have, it says at the end of verse 12, blessed are all they that put their trust in Him. You are truly blessed if you have trusted in this Son. The Son of David, this anointed King. Amen.